Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. Let's pray and then we'll dive right in. Father, we come to you and your word this morning, as always, needing to hear from you. Some of us this morning don't even know that we need to hear from you. Yet it's true of us because we are human beings. And your words are the very breath of life. Some of us come desperately knowing our need to hear from you today. Would you meet us wherever we are? Would you speak to us through your word? We pray that you would take this time now. Remind us this is not a lecture, but it is a part of worship in which we participate together as we together look to you. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the real circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead." Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. So to it we turn this morning. There's a lot in this passage, and I'm going to try to break it down as helpfully as we can. I was told in the first service that my sermon was a little bit too dense. So I'm going to work on that, and I'll tell you just what a blessing it is to have a wife that will speak the truth to you in love. Okay, here we go. Let me start with this question that brings us into this text. Whether you come into this room this morning and you're a follower of Jesus, whether you come into this room and and you're not, and you're just sort of checking things out, you, you probably have an idea of the answer to this question. The Bible teaches that the point of Christianity is that we need and get blank. Okay, now... There are a lot of ways maybe you could uh, answer that. Uh, Certainly, probably most of them center around something like this. The Bible teaches that we need salvation. That we need salvation. Okay, but then the question comes, what is that salvation supposed to do? Right? Okay, what are we being, in one sense, what are we being saved from and what are we being saved to? Salvation simply tells us that we were in danger and we're pulled out. Well, what the Bible tells us, and from the very beginning, is what we were made for is relationship with God. Human beings, men and women, created in the image of God, that we were created to be in relationship with Him, and something terrible has happened. That sin has entered the world, has broken our relationship with God, and fractured all things, and that desperately needs to be put back together again. The Bible says that's what we need salvation for, to be restored to that kind of relationship with our God. That's the point of salvation. 
that he puts us back into relationship, a healed relationship with God. That's what we were made for as human beings. So in other words, this is just another way of saying this is what it means to be fully human, to be in right relationship with our God. As has been mentioned, this Sunday is Reformation Sunday. It's time when Protestant churches celebrate uh, the Protestant Reformation on the eve of, or on the anniversary of when uh, Martin Luther went up to that door in Wittenberg, Germany, and nailed the 95 Theses and started uh, a, a spiritual revolution that we still feel the effects of now. And the, Re- the Reformation centered on this question How is that healing, that relational healing between us and God, how is that accomplished? How does God put those pieces back together? And that's what Paul is dealing with this morning in our passage from uh, Philippians chapter 3. He deals with this question of of how is right relationship with God going to be accomplished? How is our relationship going to be put back together again? And he's going to tell us about a logical wrong answer to that question. And he's going to tell us about a counterintuitive right answer to that question. So those two things are what we're going to look at. First... Logical wrong answer. How, how are we going to be made right with God? The logical wrong answer that Paul talks about is this. It simply says this, by being good enough. That's what he says. He says our knee-jerk reaction is to somehow think that if the problem is that God is good and holy and perfect and we are not, and we have broken our relationship with him, then we need to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and be good enough somehow that we can be accepted by God. That's what is standing in the middle of us and God. That is our problem. But here's the spin that Paul puts on it here. Again, let's say you're, uh, let's say you're new here and you're just checking out things and you're thinking about Christianity. If you were to pick up the Bible, in many places you could hear very explicit teaching in Scripture about turning away from the things we classically define as sin, turning away from bad things. And that is certainly part of the message of Scripture, that we are to turn away from those things that rebel against God. But that's not what Paul is talking about here. Did you notice that? He's not talking about the way bad things can separate us from God. Instead, he is talking about how good things can separate us from God. He's not simply saying to us, it is the things you do wrong that can alienate you from God. He is saying your very attempts to be good also stand between you and God and between me and God. It's the good stuff that gets in the way in what he's talking about today. Okay, if you look at those first few verses, Paul opens up with one of uh, his, most, his most stinging, though short uh, uh, comments here towards his opponents. Look at this in in verse 2. He says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Okay, here's what what is going on. Here here is what Paul is talking about. And he goes into this in length in other letters to other cities that have been really captured by this. To the Philippians, he's mostly had praise for them. They are doing well and he wants them to continue to. And he warns them about enemies that lurk out there that could take hold, but they haven't yet. And he's saying this, there are people, he said there were people in the early church that were Jewish converts to Christianity who believed and taught that in order to be Christians, a Gentile, someone who is not Jewish by birth, had to essentially become Jewish in order to follow Jesus. They had to be circumcised if they were male, and they had to, uh, they had to follow the Mosaic law in all its detail. So these people were saying, sure, we are saved by the grace of Jesus, but now that you're brought into relationship with God, you have to live like an Old Testament Jew, essentially. You have to live up to that standard. 
That is part and parcel with following Jesus. And Paul comes down as, as hard as he possibly could on this. There's lots of things that Paul comes across as very gracious about, but when it, when it comes to someone adding to the truth of the gospel, Paul takes no quarter with his enemies. Uh, he says here he calls them dogs. Okay, they, he was not picturing Fido you know, sitting on your lap and eating treats from you. In, in the uh, in first century, in the Greco-Roman world, dogs were security. They were, uh, they were guard dogs, and they were a menace because they were all the stray dogs that would that would comb through the, seat, the streets of the city, they were actually a danger. A dog was a term of derision. In fact, in Paul's upbringing, dog was a term of derision that some very, um, that some very observant Jews would use for the Gentile world. They're less than human. They're dogs. Paul turns it back on his enemies, and he, says, and he, and he calls them dogs. And he says, look out for these dogs. Look out for these evildoers. Those who mutilate the flesh. What he's talking about is this attempt to follow the Old Testament law. He's pointing specifically to the call for circumcision. He said, you must be circumcised. That's what he's talking about when, uh, when he talks about those who mutilate the flesh. In, in Galatians 5, where he really gives it to these folks with both barrels, he says, you think you're going to be essentially, you're going to be saved by circumcision. I wish you would go the whole way and just emasculate yourself. Okay, now that sounds offensive to us. Let me assure you, it would have come across as offensive in the first century as well. And I bring that up not to be crude, but only to say that that is Paul's point because he says it is this vital. It raises his ire this much to say there is something incredibly central at stake here. And that's why he reacts the way that he does. Uh, C.S. Lewis, in, in the book Mere Christianity, he speaks about this same sort of idea. He talks about, he talks about Christianity and... Okay, the way, the tendency we tend to have to staple onto Jesus our favorite causes or our favorite preferences or our favorite interpretations of things that are hard to understand in the Bible. Okay, so in, in Lewis's day, he would have said, you know, Christianity and prohibition or Christianity and, um, you know, reading only a certain version of the Bible or Christianity and being a good upstanding Presbyterian. Fill in the blank. And he says, you know, all of that, these extra things that we staple onto the gospel actually take away from it. When we try to staple something onto God's grace, it, it, it voids God's grace. It robs it, of its, uh, it robs it of its power. And that's what Paul is saying. Anything that we would add to the gospel is going to rob from it, and it is going to kill us. This wrong answer he sums up in as having confidence in the flesh, verses 4 through 6 there. He says, these people have confidence in the flesh. The confidence in the flesh meaning that there is something we can do that is going to either give us a relationship with God or maintain us in a relationship with God. And he goes on and speaks of his own confidence in the flesh. He goes on and speaks to those who would try to put something on to Christianity. And he says, you think you've got it down. Let me tell you about myself. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. I was born in the tribe of Benjamin, one of the Jewish tribes. I was... Uh, a Hebrew of Hebrews. He says, not only that, when I grew up, I became a Pharisee, one of the strictest sects of Judaism, people who were zealous keepers of the law. And he gets to the end, and without a hint of irony, he says, as to the law, I was blameless. In other words, he says, I did it all right. Paul was very religious, and he was very earnest, and he was very impressive. 
He put great confidence in his ethnicity, that he was an Israelite. In his own family heritage, he says, not only have I done it right, my parents did it right. When I was eight days old, they took me and had me circumcised just as they were supposed to as good Israelite parents. He puts his stock in his religious devotion. If anyone was religious enough, it was Paul. Uh, Here's what uh, the storybook Bible, one of the kids' Bibles we read to our kids. Here's what it says about Paul in the story about Paul. Of all the people who kept the rules, Saul was the best. I'm good at being good, he'd tell you. He was very proud and very good, but he wasn't very nice. (laughs) And that's how you communicate to five and six-year-olds a grown-up truth, which is that if the gospel doesn't come in and change you, something is very wrong. It made Paul very proud. Now, we've got our own versions of, of this attempt to somehow be good enough, this this response, we think, that logically seems it would set us right from, with God, that Paul tells us can't, but we, we've got ways of doing it ourselves. Maybe you buy into a religious version of this. Essentially, you look to your own religious duties and faithfulness to be the thing that puts you right with God. You come to church every Sunday, even when it's gloomy outside, like today. Uh, you know, maybe you, not only do you go to church, uh, there's a generation of us that, that grew up years ago where if, if your family was going on vacation or you're going to be somewhere else out of town, then when you came back to your home church, you would bring your pastor a copy of the bulletin from the church that you went to on vacation so that he would know that you went to church, right? Good religious observance. You, maybe you even go to Sunday school. Puts you in a whole other tier. Maybe you're involved in a home group Bible study. Maybe you're involved in one of the men's or women's studies. Maybe you, on a regular basis, at home, by yourself, when no one other than God is watching, you open your Bible and read it and pray. Maybe you do all that good stuff. Maybe you tell others about Jesus whenever you can. Maybe you uh, stay up late at night praying for your friends. Maybe you do all the stuff right. But maybe for you it is your own religious version of making yourself right with God. Here's one way to know if maybe that's some of the dynamic going for you. When, God, when things go wrong for you, is your reaction this? God is unfair. God is unfair. Because as we say that, we are saying, I have upheld my end of the bargain. Where is he? Why is he slacking off? So you might have a religious way of keeping up this be good enough. Um, maybe you have a secular way of doing it, one that's not connected to a given religion. Maybe it's your, you put your hope and your trust in your ethnicity or your social status or your list of accomplishments or your um, curriculum vitae tells all the good things you've done. Maybe for you it's your community service because you think this. You know, people who do community service are good people. So I'm going to go do a lot of community service. So I can be a good person. At the end of the day, you look at your life and you don't have any big headline sins. And you think this, sure, I'm not perfect, but I'm basically a good person. That's what I put my hope in. If that's what you're doing, then your instinct is not necessarily going to be to say, where is God or why is God so unfair? But when things go wrong for you, instead you're going to say something like this, life is unfair. Because I've been doing everything right. So both of these, whether religious or secular, all depend on performance. And what happens when we live before the sight of God, essentially resting in our performance? It could do several things. One, maybe it makes you very 
proud. Because maybe you look at one particular window of life for you and you are living up to the standard that you've set for yourself. And so you can feel pretty good about yourself. Pat yourself on the back. I'm living up to it. And in fact, not only am I living up to it, I look around I see some people that just aren't. You can become dismissive and critical of those who don't live up to your standard. But here's the thing. To be trapped in that kind of pride, you also have to be very committed to ignoring blind spots in your life, to avoiding them at all costs. Okay, Because at some point in your life, you're going to see you do not live a consistent life, and so you have to do all that you can to hide that from yourself and from other people. There are certain areas of life that you don't want to look at, and there are certain areas of life where you certainly don't want somebody else looking over your shoulder and seeing them. That is the stuff that stays back there. Let me tell you about all the good things that I do. And that makes you, is going to make you very defensive when your goodness is challenged by someone else. Maybe somebody gets a glimpse of that blind spot. Maybe somebody looks at your record of achievement and says, I'm not sure this is all that it, owned, that it uh, claims to be. Maybe somebody looks and says, I can't believe you screwed up like this this week. And what happens? We get very defensive. And we get very angry because someone is putting their finger on the thing that gives us life. And we say, stand back. You can't go there. Uh, in Luke 15, Jesus speaks about this very thing. He talks, he tells a, a parable, the parable of the lost sons. And one of those sons, if you're familiar with this story, he comes to his father and he says essentially this, I don't want anything to do with you anymore. I want you to give me my inheritance and I'm going off to find life somewhere else. And his father does it. He gives him his share of the inheritance. And he goes off to a far country and spends it in this riotous living. Blows it all. Comes back. To ask for his father's forgiveness, to be not made into, brought back into the family, but just to be a hired servant. But there's another brother. And this is the brother who has done everything right. That younger brother, he takes the inheritance and he runs off. The, the older brother stays there and he is dutiful and good. When that younger son returns, the father throws a party for him because he is so happy that he is back, and the older brother finds out about it, he hears about this party, and he says, you have got to be kidding me. And not only that, he goes to his father and says this, look, I have done everything right. He's the one that went and wasted the inheritance. I have done everything, and I've never even asked for a party, and here you throw this unbelievable party for this worthless brother, you have got to be kidding me. And his, brother, and his father begs him to come to the party, and he says, I will not go in. And you see, in that moment, we see that that younger brother had originally turned away from the father because he didn't love him and he didn't want him. But the older brother was doing exactly the same thing, not using his badness to run from the father, but keeping his father at bay with his goodness. I'm doing it all right. I don't need your love. Stay away from me. Leads us to be very proud. Or here's the other possibility. Let's say you, you have this standard, this thing you must do to keep God happy with you, and you're failing and you know it. Then what happens? You become despondent because there's no hope for you anymore, right? You see your failures, and it doesn't just simply make you sad or it doesn't simply make, give you a desire to honor Christ. What it does is it crushes you. It crushes you because you have put your life in this. 2 Corinthians puts it this way in chapter 7. Paul says, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. 
And when your hope is in your performance and you do not live up, it brings death to you and to me. Very proud, if you're doing well, despondent, and if you're not, ultimately leading you into anger. Maybe a rejection of religion and Christianity altogether. Maybe you're in this room and you've gone through the phase of that in your own life. And you were confronted with a version of Christianity as a kid that you felt like was telling you to be good enough. And you had enough and you left. It leaves us in anger. Okay, Paul says that is, that is the logical answer. That if there is this gulf between us and God... Our assumption is that we could somehow be good enough. He says that's not true. But what does he point us to? The counterintuitive truth that our hope is not in our own goodness but in the goodness of another. That our hope is not in our own ability to make the grade, but our hope is in Jesus who is perfect and who has paid our sin for us. Paul talks about it this way, this life of knowing Jesus in verse 3. Look with me. He says, to the Philippians, in contrast to these people who would try to be good enough. He says, we are the real circumcision in three things. Who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Those three things. He says, that's what a life that puts its faith in Jesus looks, looks like rather than putting our faith in our own effort and our own achievement. So let's take those and not in kind of out of order. The first one, he says, put no confidence in the flesh. This is Paul's astounding conclusion. This is what he comes to right here at this point in the argument. That you know, In the very next sentence, it was 15 minutes ago in this sermon, but it's the very next sentence here after Paul gives his litany of everything that he has done right. Then he gets down to verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may, be, may gain Christ and be found in him. He says that everything that he counted as gain is now counted as loss. Okay, he is using, he's using accounting terms. Uh, and you don't have to be a very skilled accountant to sort of get the idea of what he's doing. I've never been accused of being good at math or accounting, and I finally sort of get it here. Here's what he's talking about. He's using the terms of accounting. When, if you sit down to apply for a loan for a house, then you're going to be required to list in columns two different things. You're going to list your assets, right? Everything you have that's worth something. And then you're going to list uh, all of your debits, all of the things that you owe, all of your liabilities, Right? Everything you have breaks down into those financially and those two things. You have assets and you have liabilities. That's the extent of my financial knowledge. But here's what he says. He says the gospel teaches us to do an entirely different kind of accounting. Because he says all of that stuff that lined up in my list of assets for my whole life, I now realize are not assets at all. They're complete liabilities. And he takes them from one column and he puts it in the other. He says all these things that I trusted in, my goodness my ability to achieve, he says, it is worthless. And not only does it not add up to any value, it's actually, it's actually pulling me away from Jesus because I'm putting my trust in that, and that separates me from Christ. He says it gives us an entirely new kind of accounting. Everything that he put his faith in before, he now considers loss. He goes on and calls it, I think in the ESV, or uses the word rubbish. Uh, a very explicit word in Paul's day, talking about trash that gets thrown out, the smelly stuff in the street, the stuff that you utterly want to avoid. He says, that is what my good works are. It stinks. It rots. 
and it needs to be thrown out that I might find something else that is of true value. This is what James Proctor, the hymn writer, was getting at in his hymn, It Is Finished. Listen to these two uh, verses. Till, until to Jesus' work you cling by a simple faith, doing is a deadly thing. Doing ends in death. Cast your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet. Stand in Him, in Him alone, gloriously complete. What's he saying? All the things that we do to make ourselves right only bring us death, and they must be cast down so that we can embrace something better that really does bring life, that we might embrace Jesus. John Calvin, keeping up our Reformation Day theme, said this, when Paul calls everything loss, he says, Why loss? Because they were hindrances in the way of his coming to Christ. What is more hurtful than anything that keeps us back from drawing near to Christ? Now Paul speaks chiefly of his own righteousness, for we are not received by Christ except as naked and emptied of our own righteousness. Paul accordingly acknowledges that nothing was so harmful to him as his own righteousness, inasmuch as he was by means of it shut out from Christ. He says, all that stuff that I look to to make me right with God actually kept me out. And he says it's counterintuitive. Because we think we can be good and God will merit that. And he says, it works exactly the opposite of that. This is what Jesus tried to drive home for his disciples in this simple and profound uh, demonstration of his love for them. In John chapter 13, on the night before Jesus was crucified, he had the disciples in, uh, together in a room and he, he took out a wash basin. And he took off his cloak, he wrapped a towel around himself. And he went from disciple to disciple to wash their feet. Grimy, been out in the mud and mire of the streets, feet with tevas on. <clears throat> he came and washed those. An incredibly menial task, one that no servant would even want to do. And when he gets to Peter, Peter says this, You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. You hear Paul? Or excuse me, you hear Peter? You can't stoop down to this, Jesus. You can't serve me like that. You can't cleanse me like that. It's not right. It's not befitting your dignity. You're our Lord and our Master, our Teacher. And Jesus says, Unless you let me do this, you've got no part of me. Because this pictures what I'm doing with your life. You must become, you must let me come in and cleanse you. That's his picture of it. So this counterintuitive response to the gospel puts no confidence in the flesh. Again, verse 3, as we just saw. And then the second thing Paul mentions there, it says that we glory in Christ Jesus. This just kind of captured me, that we glory in him. This is the same uh, Greek word that is translated elsewhere as boast. It means putting your confidence in. It means putting your trust in. It means holding up to the light as this is the thing that is most important. He says, we glory in Christ Jesus. Our confidence now is in Christ, not in ourselves. Martin Luther put it this way in his Reformation hymn of a mighty fortress is our God. Did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing? Were not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing? Does ask who that may be. Christ Jesus, it is He. Who is Luther boasting in? Who does Paul boast in? He boasts in, he glories in Christ. He says, not only am I not going to put my confidence in the flesh, all these good things that I do, I'm not even sad about that anymore. 
because I am putting my trust in something of such infinite worth, and I will glorify that. I will spend my life giving myself for that, because that is what is beautiful, that is what is true, and that is what had so captured Paul's heart, and he means for it to capture our heart, that we would gladly turn away from our achievement and look instead to Jesus knowing Him as Lord. Look what he says in verse 8. He says, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. It's not just a little good, it's very good. The surpassing worth. He says, this is worth more than anything else I could spend my life pursuing. This is worth more than anything else I could ever attain. This is it. And he says, this is mine. He says, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Jesus wasn't simply an abstract savior for Paul. He says, he was my Lord. He is of surpassing worth for me. He owns it. He says, nothing's more valuable to me, again, verse 8, than that I would gain Christ. He says in verse 9, that I would be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. He said that when God sees me, he would see Christ. He would see me found in Jesus. When he looks to my record instead, he sees Jesus' record given to me. When he looks and sees not my brokenness, not my moral ugliness, he sees the perfection and beauty of Christ, that I might be found in him, that God would look at us that way because of Christ. That's what Paul says is of surpassing worth. He says this righteousness comes to us by faith, by trusting in what God has done for us, not from our own following of the law. You see, Paul has been given an entirely new message now that he has come to faith. Here's, here's what it says in the storybook Bible after Paul's conversion. He sa- says this, It's not about keeping the rules, Paul told people. You don't have to be good at being good for God to love you. You just have to believe what Jesus has done and follow Him because it's not about trying, it's about trusting. It's not about rules, it's about grace, God's free gift that cost Him everything. That's Paul's message. By faith that we come to Christ of surpassing worth for us. That Jesus becomes the very center of our lives. and That He would become the thing we glory in. What we love. What we praise. Not simply on a Sunday morning, but what our life shows. That it is Jesus that is the thing that we cherish and praise. And we orient our life around. In other words, that Jesus becomes beautiful to us. How would you know if that's happening? Here's a few ways, maybe. Maybe you find over time that the things that you used to love and you used to praise and you used to put all your energy and self into now are just things. Some of them good, they have their place, but they are not the thing. They're not the thing of surpassing worth for you. Maybe you find now that the thing that comforts you in your dark moments not the things you used to cling to. It's not food. It's not shopping. It's not porn. It's not gossip. It's not over-exercise. You fill in the blank. That we find actual comfort in Christ who is of surpassing worth to us. What is it you find yourself daydreaming about? Thinking about? 
and your brain has space. And is it ever the goodness of Jesus for you, for me? Maybe it shows up this way, a growing desire to spend time with the one that we find of surpassing worth. We actually have a desire now to pray, to read Scripture. We actually have a desire to go and spend time with God's people, that we'd have a desire to come and to worship here, that suddenly our experience over time on a Sunday morning is not simply reciting uh, psalms as a call to worship, not simply the singing of songs, but suddenly you find those coming alive for you. And it's not just words of a song, it is your heart pouring out in thanks and praise of the God who has found you. He's becoming of surpassing worth. Maybe you might find it this way, that you find yourself, without realizing it, growing in humility and approachability. Maybe you're someone that other people never seek out when they are struggling. Maybe over time you might find that occasionally people come and bring their burdens to you. Because now, you don't think you got it all figured out. And you don't have a quick and easy answer for them. Instead, you have Jesus, the very thing you cling to yourself. Maybe you begin to see this pouring out in a life of gratitude that you are now thankful in ways you never have been before. And you see God's gracious hand giving you gift after gift, working for good, even in the hard things of your life. Or as Paul says in verse 1, the thing he keeps pointing us back to in Philippians, he says, rejoice in the Lord always. Rejoice. That we see joy growing in our lives because Jesus is of surpassing worth to us. So he says we put no confidence in the flesh. Verse 3, we glory in Christ Jesus. And he also says that we worship by the Spirit of God. Now, the word that he uses here for worship is, is not the word that he would use to talk about what we're doing this morning. When we come together on a Sunday morning and together we sing praises, we worship together in, in a formal setting like that. When he, This word for worship is translated in other places as serve. It has to do with a life of service to Jesus that comes in response to Jesus. Not the earning of God's favor, not the checking things off the list, but instead from a heart that's been changed by a God who loves us first, a life lived out in the worship of service to Him, a life now oriented around Christ. In other words, a life where you now look at Christ and see that, that, that your faith in Him permeates, is to permeate every area of your life. It is not simply what you do on Sunday. It has everything to do with your schoolwork, with your work, with your family, with your loving your spouse, with your relationships, with your friends, that Jesus permeates everything. Because if we're going to say that the chief treasure in life is a restored relationship with God, God made us, who stands here even right now, knows our very breath, if that is what life is about, then how could it not be that every aspect of our life is to come in line with that? is to be in sync with that relationship. Paul says here, this life of worship by the Spirit of God, what we do matters. But none of it earns God's favor. And it all comes in grateful response to what He has done for us. And he goes on in verse 10 and 11, he says, As you live this kind of life of worship by the Spirit of God, of service by the Spirit of God, then you're going to see in those last couple of verses the word suffering a couple of times. He says, suffering will come into your life. And here, when Paul speaks of suffering, he's not talking about the common suffering that we all go through in various phases of life. 
at various times. The Bible has a lot to say about that kind of suffering too. But here he's talking about suffering that comes into our life because we follow Jesus. In some parts of the world, and certainly for the Philippians at their time, that meant literal physical persecution. And it still means that in some places today. Here in our culture, it's more likely to mean a cold shoulder, an exclusion, mocking. Or it might mean this. It might be the kind of suffering that comes into our life as a matter of course when we seek to obey Jesus. And it just comes part and parcel. Let me just take one example. Let's say you decide to take seriously Jesus' command to forgive your enemies. What's going to happen? You will suffer. Because when you forgive, you say to someone who has wronged you, it could be an insult, it could be stealing something from you, it could be anything. You say to someone who has wronged you, I am not going to hold this against you any longer. I'm not going to hold it over your head. I'm not going to indulge in bitterness. I'm not going to speak badly about you behind your back. I'm going to let it go. And when you do that, what happens? To that lost respect, or that lost money, or that lost whatever, who pays that? You do, right? Because you're saying to the person you forgive, I'm not going to exact it from you. Instead, I'm going to let it cost me. And that often hurts and brings suffering. But Paul tells us as we follow Jesus, it will cause suffering. But he doesn't end on that note. He says, just as we follow Jesus in his suffering, we also follow him in his resurrection. Suffering was not the end of the story for Jesus, and it's not the end of the story for us. He says that we know now the power of Christ's resurrection at work in our lives. Christ is no longer in the tomb. He has been raised to new life, and he is our reigning king. For the believer, the follower of Jesus, we know something of his power at work even now. And, he says, one day we're going to know what that is like in its fullness when Jesus comes back and our actual dead bodies are raised to life and we are given unbreakable, unending life the way it was meant to be. Paul says, suffering doesn't have the end of the story. Rather, resurrection does. That's the hope that he points the Philippians to. And it's the hope that he points us to as we wrestle with this issue of what is it that God requires to be in relationship with him. And is it our goodness? Paul says no. Instead, he says it is the goodness of Christ lavished on us. This counterintuitive thing. You mean someone else can pay my debt for me? Really? Not just money, but moral debt? You mean I have shaken my fist at God, I have lived my life in the other direction, and I can be forgiven of that, not because of what I do to clean my life up, but because only of what Christ has done for me? The gospel says yes. And we are to glory in that. Let me just conclude with this from the Storybook Bible. As it ends its chapter on Paul. God loves us, he wrote from prison. Nothing can ever, no, not ever, separate us from the never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love of God that he has showed us in Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that you would help us to gratefully cling to you and to just let go of the tattered mess of our own attempts to make our life work and to be good. 
the ways we attempt to come before you with our heads held high. We are needy before you, but the good news is that you supply all we need. May we gratefully embrace only Jesus. And may we live lives that are beautiful because we live them following you, a good and gracious Savior, never attempting to earn anything. Would you dispense with our pride? Would you strip it away? Would you give us instead eyes filled with wonder at the love of Jesus for us? May that be what gives us life. Even today, speak it to us. Drive it home. We ask this in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.